Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the morality of everyday things. I'm Jake. I'm Anthony. You may notice that this week we sound particularly good. We really do, don't we? Mm. We don't look it, though. We, we're tired. <laughs> but they, we, are, radio. we are currently speaking to you from our new studio, um, the Dream Factory in Shoreditch. Uh, yeah. Shout out. We will tag you in our stuff. Um, for those who are new, Morality of Everyday Things is a philosophy podcast where we discuss everyday moral problems. Um, exactly. In this case, I suppose this is not really a um, everyday problem that most of us have, uh, <laughs> have um, encountered. Jake, what's today's question? Uh, this week, we're tackling something that was in the news semi-recently, at least at the time of recording. This was all kicking off in August, and um, we've given it a month. Well, in a sense, it kicked off several decades ago. This is but... <laughs> true. It's been a long time in the building. The question is, was Joe Biden wrong to pull out of Afghanistan? Just quickly on a little intro stuff. If you're a fan of the show, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it means the world. Uh, well, it doesn't actually mean the world, but it helps the show. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Substack, and, of course, on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, and you'll often see our stuff on Reddit as well. So to dive right into today's show, this question is a big one because, as we say, it's been a big topic in current affairs. We'll tackle it in our usual style. We'll define the key terms, we'll provide some context, and then we'll look at what moral philosophy frameworks help us answer this question. Today, we'll be talking a lot about a guy called John Stuart Mill. In particular, his self <laughs> in particular, his self-help test as well as the concept of a just war. Yeah, we'll, we'll even you know touch on the kind of religious origins of that concept. Mm. Uh, I think Augustine kind of laid out some specific precepts. So, definitions. I would say what's a Joe Biden, but I think we can work out what Joe <laughs> Biden is. But we'll come to his kind of representative or metaphorical importance. Not metaphorical, you know what I mean, as, <laughs> as, as a figure as opposed to... As, Symbolic, as, I suppose. Yes, right. That's the word I was looking for. And what exactly are we talking about when we say pull out of Afghanistan? Because it can sometimes be easy to talk about like specific, or I, I say specific, large-scale logistical interactions and use a term like, oh, pull out. And it's like, well, actually, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, well, we will be more specific. Also, you know, if we're going to talk about right and wrong... What do we mean when we say an action is wrong? How can we assess that statement without some discussion of that fact? We've said Biden needs an introduction, but you listeners may be asking, as I said symbolically, why are we picking on him specifically? Can we really pin all the blame, if there is blame to portion out, on the president who has sat through the uh, actual motions of pulling out, even in the context of Trump actually being the person saying we are committed to doing this? Mm. The answer is, of course not. You fell for a clickbait title once again. <laughs> <laughs> Got you. But Biden is a convenient example here to explore the concept of, of moral responsibility. Uh, he, he is the man in this position, ultimately, uh, with the authority to action the withdrawal. Um, he did have the authority to delay the withdrawal, for example. Although Trump had made some commitments, he could have gone back on those commitments. Exactly. So, and also mentioned the second definition we'd look at was, what do we mean when we say we're pulling out of Afghanistan? And I think this is a useful point to give you some historical context on the issue on Afghanistan in general and how we got to the position we're in in present day. Mm. After that, obviously, we will get to the definition of morally wrong, which will be a good place to start answering the question itself. Mm. So for now, buckle up for a quick history lesson on Afghanistan and the US's involvement therein. One second. Oh, unbuckle your seatbelts. Unbuckle. unbuckle. <laughs> oh my God, get out of the car. <laughs> no, no, an interesting recommendation. Obviously, if you listen to this, you may be a podcast fan. Something to give you a late stage real world perspective on what life was like for the military in Afghanistan and also what the Taliban are like, how they operate, and a little bit just about the difficulty of being a large logistical machine, the US Army, versus a small, nimble guerrilla force, the Taliban. I really recommend season two of Serial. 
which is about the uh, American soldier who was taken captive by the Taliban and kept as a prisoner for five years. It really gives some like real insight into into that. Sorry, nice. now with the history. That's that cereal with an S, by the way. Yes, uh, <laughs> like I'm breakfast. talking like mm, they're great, <laughs> <laughs> but it is um, a great show. I've only listened to season one, which was brilliant. But so, yeah, thank you for that. In the aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. government made the decision to re-enter Afghanistan. I suppose that's the most relevant point to the current pulling out in order to prevent terrorist groups from using the country as a foothold to conduct uh, international terrorist efforts. That's basically in retaliation to the fact that Osama bin Laden and, and al-Qaeda were based there between the, the hills in um, in between Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan, having previously been in South Sudan. There's that um, 9-11 documentary that's out on Netflix, and I was watching that, so I actually know this. So in the weeks after 9-11, a bill was passed that gave uh, President Bush Jr., fairly unrestricted military authority to use force against those responsible. The early phase of the war mostly included, you know, airstrikes, so um, fairly hands-off, as they say. But it's important to realize that actually the reason that I said re-enter is because the Soviets in the 70s invaded Afghanistan, uh, which actually, from a Cold War perspective, was particularly threatening because Afghanistan was on the borders with the USSR, but not a... um, traditionally Russian-speaking or, you know, in any way kind of Russian cultural hub. What happened was that the CIA came in and armed the Mujahideen, mm. uh, a bunch of different warlords. Again, all of this is actually in that 9-11 documentary, recommended. After the Soviets kind of gave up and pulled out in 1979, we suddenly had a bunch of warlords who were really well-armed. <laughs> really well-armed. Like they, I think the biggest thing is they had Stinger missiles, so it was very hard to, you know, move things in by plane or helicopter, which if you're going somewhere really remote and with not many good roads, is kind of a big deal. Yeah, so a bunch of very angry people. Yeah, so bringing it back to present day, Biden announced he would pull out troops on April 14th, 2021, and the withdrawal would be complete by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. More symbolism. This took place after a three-month Afghanistan policy review, where it was decided that ground troops were not considered to be able to achieve anything further. This was sped up somewhat by the deal made by the Trump administration to withdraw, and they'd originally set a date of the 1st of May 2021. What happened in the in, in the sort of intervening period was 5,000 members of the Taliban were released. This is probably a decision that will be looked back on unkindly because a lot of them worked as military leaders. Mm. Interesting fact for you, Taliban. Do you, uh, do you know what it means? I actually don't. Uh, I think it means students. It's because the origin of, of many of these groups, and they kind of took power after there was a power vacuum, when the U.S. and Soviets both pulled out, actually, they, they kind of overpowered a lot of the Mujahideen. They, my friend, were largely roused by, in small communities, their preachers uh, mm. who were preaching to students. And, and that's why it's called the Taliban. No way. That's uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Fact check me that, though. Um, anyway, <laughs> many warnings, including those from NATO. Uh, this is going back to what we we're saying. Many warnings, including those from NATO, came arguing that too swift a withdrawal of troops would allow terrorist organizations to rebuild, completely undermining everything that had been achieved. Putting a concrete date on withdrawal implies that it would be the case that withdrawal would happen whether or not peace talks progressed or whether or not Taliban agreed to reduce its attacks. This is a really important thing to consider. Whether the date had been given should thus be adhered to or whether instead it should have been dependent on context. Whether whether we should have said we're out by this time or we're out at the point where we've achieved X. Mm. Um, granted, I could see the argument that people who were impatient could see we're out by the time we achieve X is just drag on yeah, forever, right? Which is which is kind of how the whole war felt. There'd be many calls for an extension with the US and its timescale to withdraw, ultimately. Uh, and I think, you know, we can now say, looking back, that a short timescale was probably a mistake. Probably the, the, ambitious, yeah, right? The Afghan government fell apart ridiculously quickly. Yeah, it literally fell apart on August the 15th. It collapsed, having been completely overwhelmed by the Taliban. 
Biden admitted at that date that the Taliban was its strongest militarily since 2001. So that was a difficult quote to read because yeah, it actually quote, came... <laughs> yeah, it's a quote that includes his stuttering. <laughs> <laughs> the pause is a classic Bidenism. What we'll do, guys, is include a fact-check timeline in the show notes. There's a good reference here so you can literally see the recent dates and events. Yep. So anyone who's uh, been watching the news at all over the last six months will know that the withdrawal itself was chaotic and it coincided with an increase of Taliban violence, basically seeing the opportunity. About 125,000 civilians were flown out alongside the remaining troops, most of whom had already left by July, so it was just the last guys left over. Not all Americans and Afghans who wanted to leave were able to, despite early promises by Biden and Trump. There were also 80,000 SIV applicants, so special visas. Special immigrant visa, right? Yeah, particularly for translators, etc. People who actually are basically hunted by the Taliban for their cooperation with the US. And we've kind of, not we, sorry, I'm saying we as the West, but actually it's the US, have really left them high and dry. So, yeah, and as I said, it was chaotic. There were several Taliban attacks which killed hundreds of civilians. Seemingly, evacuations were just taking place despite these increasing attacks, and many of those were aimed at Kabul airport. If you watch the news at all, you'll have definitely seen videos mm. and images of that taking place. Mm. So peace talks were attempted to be negotiated, but it was really in a top-down fashion. So, so that's like... They were trying to talk to Taliban leaders, but the Taliban itself actually is quite a fractious group without much centralized... Well, there is centralized control, but not strict centralized control. So top-down is... Top-down is particularly difficult. Masood Hosseini argued, they will leave Afghanistan and we will see another wave of emigrants from Afghanistan. If intellectuals leave, the country will be in the hands of warlords again. And if that happens, then that would be the cause of another civil war in the country. Mm. That's from that diplomat, Masood Hosseini. The lack of social inclusion seems to show how little consideration for the lives of civilians and their well-being considered the US's exit. Yeah, if you've been following the news recently, you'll have seen... You Videos know, of people passing babies up. Yeah, um, and also, and more and more recently, developments like, you know, girls not being able to go back to school or universities or stuff like that, you can see immediately yeah. the okay, regression. That's, of... that's something that we can discuss as well. I mean, ultimately, I, I, I think the big question that people feel here or that we kind of largely think about is the impression of our idea of morality versus their own and, mm. and people's right to self-determination. Uh, because as deeply as I disagree with the Taliban, you know, the, the counterpoint is, should we be sending in troops and, and enforcing on other people how to live? I feel like this is one of those cases where it's so heinous that it's tempting to say yes. And this is where we're going to kind of come into the concept of just war and the self-help test. But we'll come to that in a minute. Exactly. So there you go, guys. That's a short history of recent events. If you didn't already have this context, now you're better informed. We're ready to start breaking down mm. whether the decision was wrong. Okay, so, I mean, when we say something's wrong, what, what does it mean for something to be wrong in a moral sense? Well, in a colloquial, non-moral sense, we could argue a decision was wrong if it didn't achieve its intended objectives, right? So if I wanted to lose weight, the decision to eat a donut might be wrong, um, <laughs> whilst totally immoral. And when you say immoral, you mean irrelevant to morality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. amoral. Uh, as in, yeah, amoral. All one word, not amoral. Yes. <laughs> you know, in, in that case, we could say that my decision was suboptimal, maybe, rather than wrong, or, you know, not conducive with my aims. That's quite a mouthful, though. That's quite a mouthful. So we'll talk about what were the US's objectives, right, in being in Afghanistan, because that does matter to the debate. We can, so we'll discuss from a non-moral sense whether it was wrong. But obviously, being a moral philosophy podcast, we're also very interested in the moral rightness or wrongness of, of the events that happened. In many ways, deciding what is right and wrong is the fundamental question of moral <laughs> philosophy, right? That's like yeah, kind you, of, you could say so, yeah. It's it it basically <laughs> its purpose. That's, that's really all we care about. It's kind of the study of whether stuff is right and wrong. <laughs> so to define right and wrong, as always, we must reference the two classic frameworks of moral philosophy, 
And those are consequentialism and deontology. Mm. Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll be familiar with these two schools of thought. But very quickly, consequentialists tend to define rightness and wrongness based on the consequences of an action, whereas deontologists do so in relation to the action itself. For example, whether the motivations for the action were the right ones. Yeah, we should really just rename this podcast Consequentialism versus Deontology. <laughs> a hundred episode series. Kant versus Bentham. Yeah. In the ring. <laughs> I think that um, we've said this before, but it's interesting how as you kind of get meta and extrapolate outwards from, from certain uh, specific questions, it's amazing how, you know, questions do follow a similar form. Consequences versus doing the right thing in, in principle or in rule. Another example is like, you know, trading off two things. Anyway, so the consequentialist school of thought would judge the morality of pulling out of Afghanistan in the view of, of its consequences, which if we're going by the news stories and videos, and also if we are looking at this through a lens of Western moral perspective, i.e. the oppression of women is wrong, murder, well, <laughs> murder, murder is wrong? <laughs> oh my God, I need to go and change some stuff. Uh, no, uh, it, we take the enforcement of Sharia law to be wrong. But I, I also acknowledge that it's very hard to make an argument as to why my moral perspective, you know, following Western ideals is correct and yours is wrong if our entire starting point is entirely different, right? It comes down uh, to your values at the end of the day, doesn't yeah. it? I still think it's, you know... <laughs> well, uh, yeah, the, the point I'm making there is that, you know, if we were applying Western standards, consequences imply, like, hmm, it seems quite obviously bad. If we're applying, you know, the perspective that Sharia law is how we should be living and, and that's the correct moral standard, then you could actually argue that it's better. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to say something and alienate a bunch of... I hope that if you listen to this podcast, you probably don't think that we should force women to totally cover themselves and not allow them to go to school and, and enforce relatively lax executions. Anyway, contrasting with the consequences approach, deontologists or rules-based philosophers or, or people who think that things are inherently right in themselves, mm. i.e. don't kill, it doesn't matter what the context is, the thing that makes it moral is that rule. They would take a step back from this and say that withdrawal was wrong if it was done effectively for the wrong reasons or, you know, wasn't following appropriate rules. An example of the wrong reason would be to treat the people affected by the withdrawal without due respect. So in Kant's words, to treat them as means rather than ends. So when things are according to rules, you know, there is no kind of, I'm not doing this to achieve something in the distance or future, mostly a consequence. It is right and wrong in itself. Cool. Well, let's start with the, uh, with the consequentialist approach and look briefly at why was America in Afghanistan? And this is interesting because, as Ant just said, the original goal was very much one of counterterrorism. However, when he was speaking ahead of the withdrawal happening, Mr. Biden highlighted how America's goal in Afghanistan had developed from one of counterterrorism, basically to an operation of nation building. And he made similar points more recently, stressing that the purpose behind the US intervention had always been about preventing future terrorist attacks. It was never supposed to be about creating a unified, centralized democracy in Afghanistan. And if that sounds a bit contradictory, where he said it's about nation building, but it's not about creating a centralized democracy, I think what he's driving at there is... The aim ultimately was for Afghanistan to be able to govern itself. It wasn't about turning it into a US outpost, or so they say. I actually interpreted that differently. Really? I, I think the point of that quote is is actually exactly him pointing out the reasoning for leaving. Mm. His whole point there is that we were supposed to be, or you know, our aim is to stop counterterrorism, not to nation build. And that's exactly why it makes sense to pull out. Mm. Because we are now effective. Like, now we are in the process of nation building. And it's funny because I get that, but from a consequentialist perspective now... You can kind of look at it and be like, well, if your aim is to stop counterterrorism, by pulling out, you have now created a haven for counterterrorism. You've created the exact yeah. vacuum that yeah. originated Al-Qaeda. Exactly. Right? It, it just happens that the way to avoid that becoming a hotbed for terrorism seems to have been, now with, with some hindsight, to have 
propped up a semi-stable government. Mm. Um, semi-stable in that they could not have survived without propping up, evidently. Is this a good reason for leaving? Is there a difference between nation building and rectifying damage done, which which certainly in the 79 pullout was not an objective or aim. Um, <laughs> Just imagined if it had been 1969. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it basically, I feel that 1969, why would that be? Because you just said the 79 pull out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's funny. Very, very good. Um, nice mature joke. For yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But effectively, this is, this is what I was referencing earlier. And, and kind of, I feel like the implication of the negative tone of nation building, which really gets a bad rap. It's kind of seen as Western colonialism, mm. to some extent, rightly so. Um, ironically, a large part of the reason that there is terrorist groups who, or, or were, it's less of a thing now, terrorist groups who were targeting the US so much, was Biden right that to remain would be to violate Afghanistan's self-determination and sovereignty. And that's the point you were making earlier, right? Yeah. It's like, actually, how do we trade off those yeah. values? And ultimately, again, I, I kind of, maybe this is falling into moral relativism, which is an abyss where like nothing has any meaning because it's all just contextual. You know, how do we how do we determine that my moral perspective is better than the Taliban's Sharia law perspective? Although I I feel very sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> in the early years of the US's involvement, so there was a great deal of talk about reconstruction in Afghanistan, just to further the point about nation building. Yeah. So I mean, I think Bush announced back in two thousand and three a sort of mission accomplished statement because foundations were laid for democracy to take place. Mm-hmm. Afghan delegates met in two thousand and four, January, uh, to agree on a constitution for Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah, uh, it actually looked like it was going quite well until um, Bin Laden reappeared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that song? <laughs> Is this the one from uh... Uh, Lonely Island? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to censor a word and say screw instead of the F word. It's, uh, it's a guy talking. He's like, I'm going to screw you like the US government screwed Bin Laden. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. The mention of Bin Laden. Uh, anyway, that's a niche reference. But if you get it, hopefully you chuckled. So you said in 2002, 2003, they effectively said mission accomplished and... Proved not to be the case. Proved but, not to be the case. But, but Afghanistan, I mean, things were going relatively well. It yeah, felt they had suppressed. Time. They had suppressed. I think one thing to think, though, about Afghanistan is that, yes, they had managed to suppress counterterrorism. They pushed back the Taliban to practically the brink. But a big difficulty in Afghanistan, honestly, is is lack of infrastructure. And I'm not mm. just talking, I'm not just talking like, oh, you know, institutions. I'm talking physical infrastructure. Like, it is hard to effectively manage a country that large with no good roads and things right and i think i think what good evidence there is of this is that international money constitutes approximately 75 percent of the afghan government's national budget Mm -hmm. Uh, that kind of highlights the dependence afghanistan has on foreign intervention even if they were earlier this year seemingly passing the self-help test and we'll we'll come to that in a second we mentioned that's mills uh, one of mills frameworks Mm -hmm. their dependence on financial aid basically was inevitably going to be disrupted by the withdrawal of the US, or at least to some extent. So this 75% figure might be indicative of mm. a continued dependence on the US, or at least on foreign yeah. intervention. Yeah. The irony, though, is that um, when we talk about US money in Afghanistan, we're not just talking about propping up the government. Uh, historically, they have been linked with the funding of terrorist organizations. So anyone familiar with Cold War will know that... Yeah, you mentioned a bit about the Mujahideen, right? Yeah, yeah. So the uh, I mentioned the CIA coming in funding them. Mm. Uh, ironically, at one point, funding Al-Qaeda... Uh, before they decided to turn against, you know, be, until Bin Laden's whole thing was, no, anti-US. Don't um, feed the wolf cub, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Back when they were fighting against Soviet invasion for conception of kind of Muslim and Arab sovereignty, they were actually funding them. So historically, that's the case. Maybe withdrawing involvement is better on the basis that continued involvement could just continue to have similar unforeseen consequences as the funding of, you know, the Mujahideen, as we, as we discussed in the Soviet context. Mm. That's kind of a funny argument, though, right? Like, if your argument is, oh, but the knock-on effects might be negative, so I should 
do nothing, doing nothing might also have knock-on effects that are negative, yeah, right? Exactly. You're you're kind of paralyzed in that situation. You are a bit. So let's uh, zone back in on the question: Was Joe Biden wrong to pull out of Afghanistan? This is probably a good time to think more deeply about the concept of moral responsibility. So things to consider when attributing responsibility of an action uh, are often things such as a person's power, salience, and and capacity. By power, this really means whether we have the power to control our actions and its outcomes. So, for example, you know, say you could make the argument, I don't know that this was, I don't think this was the case, but say you could make the argument that practically Biden's hands were politically tied, right? He, he couldn't have realistically changed this. You know, then, then you may say he didn't actually have the power to uh, change this, and then you could say he didn't have moral agency or responsibility. Hard to make that case for the president of the United States, isn't it? But Well, I mean... You, you, but I, I get what you mean. Political yeah. deadlock is like, yeah, yeah. you know... Power also has a little bit to do with knowledge. So, you know, if I'm not aware reasonably of certain circumstances, then it may not be my moral responsibility or uh, I may not have had the power to change it. So, for example, you know, if I give you lunch and I don't realize you have a severe allergy, maybe you don't even realize you have a severe allergy, I would say that it's probably not my fault that you then um, (laughs) have an uh, allergic reaction to that. Yeah, 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 fair. There are obvious problems with the concepts of moral responsibility, namely ideas around like determinism and also skepticism, as I'm saying, about the kind of knowledge we might think is required. But yeah, that's that's uh, that's being a bit specific. Yeah, certainly though, it seems that Biden would have likely had a lot of information. And like I said, I don't think it was the case that he was kind of politically hands tied. He would have had the power to at least manipulate the circumstance. I could see the argument that like, okay, he was pushed into a corner because Trump had committed to pulling out. But certainly he could have at least managed the pullout more effectively. And he certainly had the power to determine the decision kind of overall. I, I, I don't think that there was, in the context of how badly it's gone now, mm-hmm. I don't think that there was a lack of political willpower to necessarily say, look, like we, we have good reasons to stay. This does seem to put him in a place worthy of moral blame, i.e. his agency was apparent. But is he at blame, though, for the retaliation of the Taliban and the chaos that ensued? For example, the death of civilians and military personnel in light of the Kabul airport, airport attacks. Yeah, pretty heavy, right? Because, I mean, it's not as though Biden has set about, you know, he's mm. not set about causing any of the violence yeah. specifically. His it's, actions have just led yeah. to these consequences. I would also point out that it's it's worth considering that, you know, when you're in that level of position of power, you know, if we're going to say that you're responsible for the knock-on effects of, of decisions of government, you're going to be responsible for deaths either way. You know, if they'd stayed, he would have been morally responsible for all mm. the soldiers who died. So that has to be born in context. It's not just like a, oh my God, these people died and it's his fault. Like people were going to die and it was going to be ostensibly to some extent his fault, no matter what he did. Yeah, a little bit damned if you do. Yes, exactly. Think. We mentioned at the beginning a philosopher we wanted to introduce you to in this episode was John Stuart Mill. We've mentioned him several times before, actually, for, mm. for long-time listeners. He is a famous utilitarian. He took the work of Jeremy Bentham and made it better <laughs> made it more famous Bentham um, is like Bob Dylan and then yeah. Bob, no Bob Dylan's very famous well so is Bentham I, thought, yeah. I was just going to say someone who covered Dylan but then everyone covered Dylan just yeah. a terrible analogy That's it, yeah really mate you're, you conveyed nothing there anyway <laughs> so we'll take a look at Mill's self-help test which we mentioned briefly already before that it's worth adding some background uh, Mill's definition of liberty uh, is a negative one we've also talked about positive and negative liberty in Isaiah Berlin but it's the absence of restraint so it's not kind of the you know idea of like oh, is a heroin addict free? It's more like, is a prisoner free? Because they're literally restrained. Mill's harm principle builds on this, uh, and it goes something like this. The idea that power is only able to be exercised over others in order to prevent harm, harm being setbacks or injuries to one's liberty. So, yeah, so you're allowed to exercise power over other people as long as the aim is to reduce harm. And that can also, that harm can be setbacks or injuries to one's freedom, Mm. as well as, you know, 
physical pain. Inflicting harm is wrong and makes an action wrong. Again, this conception is a negative conception of rights and liberty. Freedom from, not freedom to, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Is, the, is the classic way of describing that. Further, this is a necessary reason for Mill to justify restriction upon the liberty of others. Uh, this is either sufficient for justifying this restriction or necessary, but not sufficient. And thus, there must be other additional reasons for justification. This does seem to completely exclude any form of paternalism. Mm, okay, so what is Mill's self-help test? The test itself is the idea that foreign military intervention is justified when a country is unable to provide defence or a military of its own, especially when their own military is holding up a despotic or oppressive government. This includes defending the country in question from both internal and external enemies for the sake of liberty. Mm. So he asked the question whether one country is justified in helping the people of another in a struggle against their government for free institutions and argues that the answer depends on what the battle itself is, who the people are facing, etc., He seems to come to the conclusion that it is only justifiable as a measure of self-defense. And to quote, the doctrine of non-intervention to be a legitimate principle of morality must be accepted by all governments other than in the cases as illustrated above. Meaning that if people are unable to help themselves defend their liberty, then foreign intervention is permissible to help Mm. this defense continue or preserve a country's sovereignty. I suppose this is kind of like an international law extension of the harm principle. And to Mm. give an example of the harm principle, it's basically saying, for example, I can... Say my cousin is a heroin addict. I don't know why I specified cousin. It's a weird. It's a weird. It's a weird distance of family relations. <laughs> Not that close, but close enough. Uh, say my brother is a heroin addict, right? Um, Just imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you could say basically by the harm principle, I can restrict his freedom, i.e., force him to go to rehab, you know, tie him down to a bed, force him to take some medicines or whatever to help him get over his addiction, and that would actually be permissible, even though I am actually harming him, restricting his liberties. Right. Uh, And this is basically an international relations extension of that. Right. It's saying Mm. if this government or country isn't able to serve its people and is, in fact, despotic or harmful, then I can be justified in intervening and helping effectively, even though for a period it may involve restricting their freedom. Exactly that. Now, there are some issues with the self-help test. First, it seems to be grounded in ideas such as a civilized government cannot help having barbarous neighbors. It either finds itself obliged to conquer them to assert so much authority over them as to break their spirit that they gradually sink into a state of dependence this upon is a quote, itself. By the way. This is that a is quote. a quote, sir. I should have said quote and end quote. Yep. Basically, it kind of seems to justify more civilized countries interfering on the basis of improving other countries mm. by Western standards. And Ant alluded to this before. It's it's kind of coming back to that point of like self-determination. Yeah. But, I mean, basically, if you take Western ideals, it justifies interfering in any non-democratic country, which, you know, actually we probably need some conception of the fact that there are legit... I don't want to say that the Taliban enforcing strict Sharia law is legitimate, but there are other legitimate ways of running countries. There, there are many democracies that fail because actually mm. they don't have the necessary institutions and rule of law, uh, amongst other things, to really make that institution function properly. Uh, so to just go in anywhere that's not democratic and force them to be a democracy doesn't work. And I think, you know, if you look at the US's history of intervention in South America... Not to mention the fact that their intervention there is generally more underhand. But if you look at their intervention in South America, that's a great example of actually creating relatively unstable states mm. as opposed to, you know, great free democracies. Yeah, there's a sense of self-perpetuation, right? Yeah. So actually, in the act of intervening, you you end up making the situation worse. And that seems to justify further intervention. Mm. And, and it's like, yeah. how do you how do you break that cycle? Yeah. But I think the, the biggest issue really is, you know, to say like, oh, they're a despotic government or they're being cruel or horrible is you know, subjective to what, what your values are, right? If, yeah. if you are, if you're a, a devout Muslim, 
you may not actually think that what the Taliban is doing is wrong. It's it's through the lens of Western morality that we uh, perceive it that way. Which is not to, again, I, I, I keep making that argument. And it's playing devil's advocate. I really don't want to say like, hey man, like that, that, to legitimize them. Like they, they are horrible. I just acknowledge that that's from my perspective, and I can't help having that perspective. And, and, and yeah, it's the subject that's where I'm brought up. That's that's the nuance of the reason we have this podcast, right? It is. It's to, to tackle the difficult issues in the grey area. Yep. We mentioned before that 75% of the Afghan national budget was international aid. So even if the US was in theory no longer needed to, to apply again the lens, there are question marks over how self-sufficient the Afghan government really was. It's also worth questioning how informed the US intelligence services were about the Taliban's power and plans. Because I think that's actually something we haven't really talked about, but does seem to sit at the heart of the question. Did the US not anticipate the speed and ruthless efficiency of the Taliban's overthrow? Why were they so committed to withdrawing that they ended up completely unable to fight? Like, mm. they, they got completely overpowered. Mm. And that matters because if you take a consequentialist approach, clearly the peaceful withdrawal they wanted, or they would have wanted, didn't happen. But if you take a down-to-logical approach, and the US government has withdrawn without due consideration for the likely impacts, i.e. they failed to respect the Afghan communities they're withdrawing from and the lives of other citizens involved, then the motive of withdrawing by the anniversary of 9-11 really has to be called into question. Yep. Like, yeah, it, it just looks like the wrong one. I mean, the, the, the best example, I suppose, from a deontological perspective is don't betray people, don't let people down, don't endanger people. And the obvious examples are people who were for the special, who were registering for the special immigration visas, who basically were sideswiped by the mm. speed of the withdrawal and didn't manage to actually be not just taken to the US for a better life, not necessarily, but you know, you know what I mean? Again, subjective, for a better life, actually left in great peril by the mm. fact that they had, uh, no less by the fact that they had helped Right. So I take it from the point above. Are you when you're saying, oh, 75 percent of the Afghan budget was international aid. Are you saying that's an argument to the credit of, OK, actually, this country is failing the self-help test. And yeah. so we should have stayed. I think so. Yeah, I can it, see that. It, it's basically saying they they hadn't built up enough self-sufficiency, even though yeah. by some measures they had yeah. like that. So, so whilst there is like a subjective lens in the extremes, it should be relatively clear. And this is such an extreme that maybe we can say, look. There are some gray areas, but this is definitely a, a country that is failing the self-help test. And like, you have to have a very specific and, by most people's accounts, cruel perspective of morality mm. to agree with the way that it's being run at the moment. I think so. Yep. Lastly, we wanted to introduce the concept of a just war in mm. this episode. Um, now, there are two parts of the sort of just war theory. One, they, they both have Latin names, so forgive that. One is called, is it... Just ad bellum. Just ad bellum. <laughs> Sounds like a cooking instruction. Mm. Um, <laughs> so just ad bellum is the conditions under which force is justified. So we'll talk about what conditions those are. And then just in bello is how to conduct a war ethically. So yep. it's kind of like one is one is the reasons in which uh, you mm. can justify mm. force. The other one is like the actual conduct of a war itself. Yep. Now, I think just, just war theory really, I think, largely originates from uh, religious mm. perspectives. I mean, if you think most religions at their core seem to be somewhat it's deeply ironic they seem to be somewhat pacifistic like pacifism is probably a core tenant of of most religions you know turn the other cheek etc et et yeah and i i can then also an eye for an eye yes and, and yet an eye for it. there is um i cannot remember his name but there is a, a saint who refused to take up arms for the romans and and uh, became a martyr like these are the sort of ideals that are actually put forward but at the same time religion was the justification for the crusades so i think one thing that was really particular to this concept of just war in a pre-20th century context is actually this this how to conduct war ethically, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, if you think about it, it's people who are marked as troops meeting up on a battlefield. It's, it's strangely ceremonial and organized, right? <laughs> and, and attacking each other, right? Yeah. And when you think about it in that context, and also like a lot of these people, you know, through ancient history, a lot of these people were effectively mercenaries uh, or, or paid or professional soldiers, right? People who, to some extent, were making a choice. Whereas if you contrast this with 20th century, 21st century war, you actually don't see this so much. Like, first of all, the idea of conducting war ethically becomes impossible when you start, you know, war is largely defined by aerial bombing of targets, right? Exactly. You don't um, have that same sort of physical battlefield kind no, of like no, constraint. There's not exactly. a pitch and <laughs> in then, the same way. And then particularly if you think about the context of Afghanistan, suddenly you're fighting quasi-guerrilla troops, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's very hard to distinguish them. They're not clearly marked. And so, I mean, part of the part of the difficulty of the U.S. and Afghanistan is is the number of civilian deaths mm. that that arise through through the kind of good intentions. I, I'll give them benefit of the doubt of you know trying to take part in maintaining a semi-functioning state. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So, um, do you want to take us through some of the specifics of just war? Yeah, I think the three conditions uh, as we have them written down are one. Taking human life is seriously wrong. That's a pretty safe axiom. Mm -hmm. States have a duty to defend citizens and to defend justice as mm -hmm. a value. And basically, it's sort of like a X plus Y. Mm -hmm. Defending moral values and protecting innocent people does sometimes require the use of force. So it's not saying that wars are necessarily justified. Wars are still kind of perceived as wrong. But there are limited occasions when actually, mm -hmm. you know what, the use of force is yep. considered proportional yep. to what Sorry. you're trying to achieve. It's funny because... Anytime that there's a war, either side will feel that there's a sense of justice. No one is like, I'm evil, right? But I think the case that most people take of this in retrospect is probably, I don't know, the Second World War, for example. Mm -hmm. It's not to Nazi Germany's moral credit that they were aggressors. They, they were invading other countries, right? That seems like a fairly clear... I mean, that, that's, that is the international relations equivalent of self-defense, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. if, someone, if someone is literally trying to invade you, then... It's just to defend yourself. I, I think that's reasonable. The irony of pacifism is that it would not only like allow a, an aggressor to win, but could even encourage an aggressor, right? You, you, it's actually, you could argue, necessary. Like a lot, of, a lot of the point of military in modern day is that they deter people from doing things. Like their, their job isn't actually to fight. Their job is to like show people that you shouldn't fight. Yeah. Cool. So that's just yeah. war theory. Sorry, um, there's, a, there's a couple other points there. So, and we kind of mentioned this in just a conduct of war. A few things we kind of mentioned already, but, you know, the people who are fighting should be clearly marked. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, you, they, you should be able to tell that clearly. And you should intentionally only attack military objectives. Again, like I said, if you think about the context of World War II onwards and the Vietnam War, this kind of went out the window. This, this doesn't happen anymore. The concept of total war has kind of really made conceptions of just war outside of self-defense. Hard to imagine. So the question is, uh, or I would put in this context, is the invasion of Afghanistan to stop counter-terrorist attacks? say on u.s homeland self-defense is that a, you know if we say that look self-defense is necessary can you <laughs> can you defend yourself by, by going invading out to attack yeah. right yeah the best the best defense is a good offense <laughs> um does that create a just war situation and i think it's tricky because you're talking about the way that the nature of battles have changed right so it's not a case of like you mm. you, you would as you say you normally think mm. of self-defense being something where you you know you stand your ground as opposed yep. to going out to attack yep. but because i mean 9 11 happened from yep. like yeah, from from with from Al Qaeda based in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, and then I guess so. so following on from this, if we if we make the argument, okay, maybe this wasn't a just war, does that not then? And this is a deontological argument as opposed to a consequentialist one. Irrespective of the outcome, if it's not a just war, should you pull out? Yeah, that's really interesting because it sounds like actually the faster you pull out, 
the quicker you resolve the sort of moral quandary you've created, right? Yes, exactly. But do you think that's the right answer here? I am in between. Okay, so my... Uh, is this us wrapping up? There's one other question before we wrap yeah. up, which okay. is just about finality. Okay, so I, I'm in between. I think, from my perspective, it's really hard to resolve, on the one hand, respecting other people's sovereignty, and on the other, consequentialism. And, and also, I know this is sunk cost fallacy. There's also this sense in which, like, we had... Like, people said, oh, this much money, this much lives. Like, a lot of that was front-loaded. Like, mm. the maintenance of as things were in Afghanistan was nowhere near as costly as the first year or two up to the point where, you know, Bush had basically announced, like, we, we've completed it, we've won. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're talking sub-10,000 troops, we're talking very little active uh, fighting, etc. But it does feel like a sunk cost to then pull out and it's like, right, so all of the work we were doing, you know, if, if the point of the war was to stop terrorist cells operating there, you know, by pulling out now, well, we, we you know, by that logic, we seem to have failed. So that's a practical one. And then from a, the moral perspective is more difficult because I want to say from my Western lens, you know what, actually, like, the government that exists there is despotic and, and terrible and fails the mill self-help test. On the other hand, do I really see a path where you can build an independent nation? Mm. Where, you know, may, like, if you think about even European countries through history, they have all gone through horrible periods and that is part of what formed that country and response to terrible periods is kind of how we strengthened our institutions over time. Uh, think, character building. <laughs> <laughs> That's a horrible... Uh, yeah, that feels like a weird argument. Like, you, you must suffer. No, I mean, like, okay, you know, the, the king overstepping is part of what led to... The French Revolution. Yeah, well, example. the French Revolution and then in the UK, the, the strengthening of parliament over time. Mm. And... You know, it's really nice to think that you can parachute in institutions. Time and again in Africa, South America uh, and Afghanistan, we've just seen that you just can't parachute in institutions. It mm. just doesn't seem to work. Whether that means you should throw your hands in the air and just be like, oh my God, I give up on this is something else. It what, is are your, what are your thoughts? Well, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I think the thing that makes the whole situation in Afghanistan so tragic is exactly as you say, they went in with an objective. They seem to have relatively achieved it, at least early Well, on. they killed bin Laden. Yep, yep. Uh, and then things were running, at least from our sort of perspective here, in, in what looked like quite a stable way. And then I think what makes it really tragic is not just the lives lost and emotional footage that we've seen in the news, but the fact that it does feel like that's completely undermined everything that was achieved to that point and taken us back to step one. And I think that's where you sort of, that's where the moral question really comes in, isn't it? It's like, oh, you know, was it worth it? Has it actually just sort of set things, you know, the clock's just been wound back to 20 years ago or further beyond that, to be honest. And I don't know, it's tough because mm. if that's always going to be the ending, then you might as well have spent no time there at all. Like everything, yep. it was all sort of yep. futile. Yeah, Sad. another question then, in the context, context of having pulled out and everything that's happened in Afghanistan, and particularly the fact that the US... The Soviets were the first people to destabilize the region. Does the U.S. have a responsibility to rectify damages? Should I mean, to be fair, the U.S. and other and other international governments already pretty much were funding the government. And, you know, the decision for another government to come in place, I guess that's them tacitly saying we, they don't necessarily have a right to that money. But I mean, it's it's wider than that, right? Like, I guess the difficulty is that the Taliban will kind of make that very difficult because you don't want to yeah. you don't want to necessarily fund the Taliban, but they will make it very hard to you know, say, for example, we want more women to be educated there. They will explicitly stop humanitarian effort to do that. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. I, and I suppose that's kind of the question of are you basically saying, you know, will the withdrawal be permanent? Like, mm -hmm. is this is this something when you're talking about rectifying? Is this is it something where the U.S. should actually consider like going back in or is it it's basically it's done now? Does would that change things actually from a moral point of view? Like, if the withdrawal were not permanent, would that make things more justifiable or unjustifiable? God, I don't know. A big part of the difficulty of this is it's not just that you're pulling out 
it's that you're pulling out and what you're naturally leaving behind is the you know the the now de facto sovereign is so unreasonable and so ill aligned with your perspective yeah. and and it's not like you pull out somewhere and it's like you know a bunch of people who were running a stable country like great the aggressors have left we can run our country again mm. right say for example uh, germany pulling out of france post the uh, second world war invasion mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. A much better analogy is Vietnam. Yeah. But again, to my point earlier, look at Vietnam now, right? Should the U.S. have, you know, I could see people having made the argument, having just pulled out of Vietnam, that the U.S. should have, uh, actually, the U.S. basically lost the war, so they didn't have a chance to engage in nation building. But you get my point that, like, if you look at Vietnam, they were left in a horrible state and have managed to kind of, from that, build a functioning nation in their own right. Yeah, yeah, from the ashes. But it's tricky, as I think where it comes back to with the Taliban is just the fact that their their norms and values are in mm. such stark contrast with what we value. The US government would have liked to have pulled out and left behind the government that was running under its occupation and give Afghanistan a chance to take some measure of like sort of yeah sovereignty, build from that base, as opposed to creating the power vacuum that the Taliban then occupied. And with all the chaos that ensued, they've basically, yeah, they've rewound the clock and it looks like things are actually worse than when yeah. the US even went in in the first place. And the so. I, I think the irony is, on, on what you're saying of permanence, I give 50-50 odds that within the next two decades, someone is intervening again. Yeah. And also, I think a big part of it will probably be because terrorist cells begin to operate from there. Mm. However, one thing to consider, in the modern world, do you need a military presence in order to suppress the terrorist forces there i'm actually not a military expert or certain modern, <laughs> aren't you <laughs> no uh, we can, i mean we can, actually we have a friend who relatively is he works at the mod we should probably ask him it's interesting like do we need boots on the ground in order to send a drone mm. you know do we need boots on the ground in order to probably to gather intel but you know I'm, I'm sure that intel officers are still going to be there fair well i think that's probably not a bad place to well wait, 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 let's bring it back to the question though was joe biden wrong specifically was the president of the usa joe biden yes. wrong let's do the conclusions i'm going to put it out there it's really easy to assess in retrospect and it's also really easy when i don't have to deal with the consequences of his actions to be fair i said earlier oh i don't know if there'd be lack of will of political willpower but if he'd have gone back on what trump said i could see like backlash in the senate and stuff being like oh but we're wasting so much money and like it's not achieving anything this is the forever war blah 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 i do not know what it's like for him to experience that you know maybe his hands as i said earlier were more politically tied than i realize Mm -hmm. but the world is not black and white there's definitely a middle road and he definitely should have been responding through policy to the fact that the taliban were clearly sweeping across the nation as we were pulling out i think that's the thing it's it is a question of the information that they had to hand i mean again we've spoken about biden specifically biden is sort of symbolic he's representative of the guy with most moral agency here the question is, did U.S. intelligence services know enough? Like, it, it, it's hard to imagine a world where they didn't have some sense of how much the, the Taliban were, like, ready and, and, and prepared to engage and how quickly they'd be able to act. I think, I mean, maybe it's just a PR thing and maybe the reality is different to what we saw in the news, but it did seem like they just got caught with their, like, you know... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the expression. Got caught totally unawares because they committed to this state of pulling out and then suddenly... Mm. The Taliban just completely took advantage of that. Yep. So quickly, so and, quickly. That's and the I crazy think, thing. And in fairness, I think the problem with the date and the pullout is that when you say that, I said maybe there's some policy stuff they could have reconsidered and definitely should have. A big issue, I think, is when they set that date to then renege. How do you pronounce that word? Re- yeah, renege. Or renege. Renege. To, to, then, to then renege. <laughs> to renege. Yeah, to, 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 to then, you know, it's one of those ones you will ever you read. You never read, yeah. yeah, yeah. To renege on that, on that date actually 
could have been a, a flashpoint for for basically reigniting a full-on war with the yeah. Taliban. So I could also see how that actually, they set the date thinking things would be okay. And then actually at some point, it, they were kind of cornered by this date that they've set. Because to then be like, actually, we're not leaving, would have caused all-out war with the Taliban. Reasonably, yeah. could, could have. Right, that was long, but... I enjoyed it. It was fun. And guys, thank you for listening. Uh, we said at the beginning, but please, if you like the show, do yeah. subscribe. Leave us a review as well, yeah. especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. I think that's the only place you yeah. can leave Shout reviews. out to Martha Caddick and to Kane, Kane Hunter. Kane Hunter. Martha helps us prepare. She's our production assistant. And Kane is our editor. And also, again, shout out to Dream Factory in Shoreditch where we recorded this. Yeah. Thank you to all you guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all you listeners. The show would be nothing without you guys. Please do sign up to our newsletter. We've also got a Patreon. If you like the show, you can support it there. Please send us your comments and thoughts. We'd love to hear what you made of this episode. Love any suggestions for future episodes. One of the ones we're looking at doing soon is about traffic laws. And before that sounds really boring, the question was going to be, is it morally wrong to jump red lights? Yeah. Or when is it wrong to... When, when is it? Actually, I want to flip it around. When is it right to jump through a red light? We'll say more about that on the next show. Have a think about that one. Yep. Let it percolate. Thank Have you very much. Day. Cheers. Appreciate it. Take care.